Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation highlights from The Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This podcast is being released on Father's Day weekend and the first guest excerpt is from Justin Camp of Gather Ministries. With appropriate comments for Father's Day, he's been inspired by NASA astronauts and he encourages men to pursue their relationship with God so that they might fulfill his purposes. Then, Tyler Sexton is a doctor, but because he has a disability, he was told that he could not be one. He's overcome his obstacles by trusting in the Lord and shares a bit of his amazing story coming up. And the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that the word sex in civil rights law also includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network outlines this stunning decision and its implications. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, Amanda Barrett offers some insight into a group of committed Christians who were involved in attempting to thwart the Nazi regime in World War II Germany, using their communication tools at hand to organize people and draw them to the cause. Plus, Jason Yates of My Faith Votes shares information about a new initiative of that organization called Our Church Votes, providing tools for churches to educate and motivate their congregations regarding making their voice heard at the ballot box. Finally, Jay Payleitner shares words of encouragement based on a prayer found in the book of Proverbs that can lead a Christian to experience more of God's contentment by walking in his will. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Justin Camp is the co-founder of Gather Ministries and creator of the Wire series for men. He's written a book in that series called Odyssey, Encountered the God of Heaven and Escaped the Surly Bonds of This World, which provides encouragement for men to draw closer to God, integrating the testimonies of six NASA astronauts. Here now is Justin Camp. This is the second book in a series for men that I'm uh, working on um, with uh, the Christian publisher, David C. Cook. Um, and uh, this is all about, you know, developing a, a close relationship with God. So I feel like men, um, modern men, men these days, um, take uh, so much of what we know about God and our relationship God at third or second hand. We, we hear a sermon and we hear somebody else's story about their uh, relationship with God, or we read a book and we hear about the that author's um, uh, interactions with God, but uh, we've sort of um, opted out of um, this kind of spiritual relationship um, that we're all meant to have. And so um, it, it's part, partially my story, um, you know, of a season where I felt like I went from kind of knowing of God to knowing God. Um, and uh, how do we do that? Well, most often, you know, certainly in Scripture most often, but I think most often in, in uh, you know, modern day, we, you know, hit the road. We go into the wilderness um, uh, characters in the Bible are constantly, you know, going into the wilderness to, uh, to meet God face to face. Moses did, David did, you know, um, Jesus often went, went into the wilderness to have one-on-one time with his father. And so it's a practical book, um, you know, sort of leading men into this process and it can be literal or figurative. You know, we can actually, um, you know, pick up and go, though that's much harder during the, the current circumstances, but we can do it and, uh, uh, you know, human beings often do it uh, figuratively and go through a season of, of community or, or uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, deep study into the Bible for a season or, or fasting or, you know, some sort of journey where we are able to, through these practices that we 
um, you know, have been passed down to us over the over the millennia, um, you know, and encounter God for ourselves and and to start developing developing a personal relationship. Um, so that's one thing. The book is very practical, but I would say on the other side, it's just you know I tried to make it as fun as possible, and so it also brings in the stories of six um, NASA astronauts, men of faith, uh, men who took you know some of the greatest physical journeys um, human beings have ever taken into Earth orbit and then all the way to the moon. Um, but they were also men who who took these similar journeys um, with God. So share with me some of the common threads that you were able to draw from the lives of these six men that can be most applicable to Christian men's lives today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think I, I think if I had to pick the 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 most common, you know, the biggest common thread um, among their lives and our lives is that there are these promises that our culture makes. You know, that that um, promises that um, that I think the enemy makes through our culture um, that say things like, you know, you are what you achieve. You know, you are what you own. You know, and so so um, life becomes all about jobs and titles and houses and, um, you know, things that we acquire. And uh, these men were no different. I mean, they were they were um, I think they felt a, a great sense of purpose because we were in the middle of the Cold War um, and, uh, you know, and, and this, this, you know, uh, a, a heated space race with the uh, with the Russians. But they were also men who, you know, who were who were struggling with the uh the lies that uh you know you're you are a successful man when you when you are successful at your job and the more successful you are the more of a man you are and so when these men came back from their missions they came back from the moon or they came back from earth orbit and left nasa um they were struggling with the exact same things that men are struggling all over the world which is you know when these promises um come up empty and they always come up empty then we're left kind of floating, you know, we're left kind of like, well, what are we living for? Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, t- talking about their stories and those struggles and then finding God in those struggles is where I think most men are, are really going to relate. Justin Camp here on The Intersection. The ministry website is gatherministries.com. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Tyler Sexton, Chair of Pediatrics and a Physician in Hyperbaric Medicine and Wound Care at Singing River Hospital in Pascagoula, Mississippi. In our recent conversation, he shared about his pursuit of being a doctor, even though he was told he could not because of a disability. He's co-authored with his mother, Lisa, a book called No Such Thing as Can't, A Triumphant Story of Faith and Perseverance. Here now from a recent Meeting House conversation is Tyler Sexton. Well, I was born um, at 28 weeks, and both my lungs collapsed at birth at that time. And they told my parents that there was not much hope for my survival. They said that if I did survive, that I'd be blind, mentally and physically disabled, and never walk. You know, surfactant wasn't created. The thing that helps expand those premature lungs and any sort of respiratory distress wasn't created until 1988. And they said that if I did survive, or that if I uh, didn't survive, that they'd keep my body warm so they could hold me for the first last time before they buried me on the respirator. And uh, so there wasn't much hope for my survival. They said that if I did, that I'd be blind and, and, and never walk. So I've learned uh, that people say no and, and God says yes. As I got older, by 18 months old, I still couldn't sit up. I still um, 
you know, couldn't ambulate like the other kids. And of course, then my mother notices there was something wrong. So of course, my mom thought she's just going to go to the doctor and there's going to be a fix and she's going to get told what to do and life's going to continue, right? And we got an MRI and I was diagnosed with spastic diplegia, which is um, spastic CP is the most common um, type of cerebral palsy uh, in these premature babies. And so then our world was dramatically changed and that put us on the course to where we are today. As you live with uh, cerebral palsy today, how does it affect your your life, your your functioning, and uh, and what you do with uh, with your medical skills? Sure, sure. Well, I've had I have had sixteen surgeries, and I'll tell you, um, almost, that's almost you know every year in my life at the beginning. You know, wow. I got uh, so used to when my back was on a gurney, eighty percent of my childhood. I learned to trust in something greater, and that of course was Christ for me. And I've learned that. You know, I still I still walk with a limp. I fall four to six times a day. I've broken almost every bone in my body from falling. Um, I use a service dog, which dramatically changed my life, um, kept me from falling. And now, and um, you know, as I got older, I thought it was going to get easier. You know, I got made fun of a ton in school um, and plenty of stories of bullying and things like that. But as I got older, I thought it would get easier. Well, when I went off to college, you know, I told them I wanted to be a doctor. And they said, you need to forget that dream and never be a doctor. And I said, I need to pick a different advisor. So I found another one. I said, hey, listen, I know I'm a young, dumb, 18-year-old kid, but I'd like to be a doctor. And they mapped that out for me. Little did I know what that was going to take. I uh, did well in my classes, did well uh, in interest exams, and I got rejected uh, in medical school because of my disability. So I had to go to the Caribbean. Um, So I've learned a lot that, um, you, you know, if you live by everybody else's approval, you will die by their rejection. And God was right there with me, and we just kept jumping hurdles. And so fast forward, I went to the University of South Alabama, Women's Children's Hospital for my residency. Um, I had the privilege of then working at Singing River as their chair of pediatrics. I've done some other hospitals work at John Hopkins for a short stint for about 15 months and then still at USA Women's and Children's. But I want people to know that, that no matter what happens to you, that God has a purpose and a plan. And he can take a tragedy and turn it into a triumph like he has in our lives. You mentioned that your faith in Christ has been such a major part of your life. At what point did he enter your life? So I knew at an early age, um, I, I remember vividly being saved um, at four years old. I, I went um, and I had a, a selective dorsal rhizotomy, a special surgery that basically was the one that really helped me get out and uh, walk today. It's basically a surgery where they take all the, the, the bad nerves that are causing so much spasticity or tightness and they remove those. And I remember the doctor came up to me and he said, how do you like how I healed your legs? And I said, you didn't heal my legs. Jesus did. And so I knew early on, you know, he became my savior. But I will tell you, it became real to me in knowing that God had a purpose and a plan in my life when I was in fourth grade. And I'll never forget it because I was in fourth grade and there was a substitute PE teacher. And we were trying to do jumping jacks. And there were thousands of kids out front, you know, in, in the yard doing jumping jacks. And I was trying my palsy attempts of jumping jacks. And they were clumsy. They were not perfect. And in front of my classmates, in front of the entire school, as a matter of fact, the, the physical education teacher shouted out. He said, hey, kid, quit climbing around. You're in fourth grade. That's the best you can do. I was devastated because that was the best that I could do. I went home that day, and I told my mom I didn't want to be me anymore. And she took me to my room. She sat me down in my room, and she started throwing everything out of my room. I mean, the toys, the pictures, the bed sheets. She took my Nintendo. Who doesn't love a Nintendo, right? Took it away. And she said, what can't I take away from you? I said, I don't know. You've taken everything. I started crying angrily, bitterly. The one person I love the most, my little sweet potato, took it all. And she kept throwing everything away until there was nothing left. I said, what can't I take away from you? I said, I don't know. She said, I can't take away who God made you and the spirit he gave that you're alive and you're you and you have something to do. At that moment, I knew that I was meant for a purpose. And not saying every day was easy, 
but I took that cardinal truth and that has manifested in something uh, beautiful in my life and my family. Tyler Sexton here on The Intersection. You can find him online at tylersexton.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's the president of the Judicial Crisis Network, Carrie Severino, who provided analysis and commentary on the recent Bostock decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, which expanded the definition of the word sex in Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Law to include gender identity and sexual orientation. From that conversation, this is Carrie Severino now. The underlying cases have to do with two uh, men who said that they had been fired because they were homosexual and one who said he was fired because he transitioned and wanted to uh, present as a woman at work. And uh, what the, the defense by the employee, employers is, that's not even covered by the federal uh, employment law. The, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is what's at question here. And what that forbids, we're familiar with this kind of litany of no discrimination based on race, uh, national origin, religion, or sex. Uh, but, but it doesn't include language that says no discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. There are many federal laws that do. There are 21 states that include that language that, that, that express, expressly say no discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. However, that law doesn't include it. And so the question is, well, if it includes discrimination based on sex, should we then incorporate, interpret that very broadly to say it sweeps in these other things? What the, the court's decision said is, yes, it, these things have to do with sex, and therefore it's still because of sex. But what the dissent, and there were two separate dissents um, by Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas joined uh, Alito's dissent as well, that explained that this is not, when you're looking at what we call textualism, interpreting a statute according to its words, we have to interpret those words not in a rigid, literalist way where you just kind of take them each out of context and say, well, you know, sexual orientation has to do with sex, therefore it must be part of discrimination because of sex. You have to look at what the words actually meant by the people who were using them. In this case, the legislators in 1964. And no one is arguing that any of those legislators thought at all that this covered sexual orientation. And it's, it's even more clear it, it did not include gender identity. That was not even a psychologically recognized concept for many years thereafter. So it, it, the, the law clearly was not intended to cover this. Nonetheless, um, the Supreme Court said, well, we're going to expand the, our understanding of that, and we're going to say that discrimination because of sex now includes discrimination because of sexual orientation. I think that's a problem because we need to have the understanding that our laws are passed by the legislature. So when they change them, it's not a judge that gets to say, well, we're redefining this word. It has to be the legislature. Like, as I said, many, many legislatures have. They have added that text uh, saying that there, that there is no discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. That's for the legislators to do, but it's not the job of judges then to redefine the terms of the law. One of the questions I have, looking at this as an employment issue, and there, of course, has been strong disagreement that has been expressed by the, the Christian community. A number of Christian leaders have been outspoken against this ruling. What implications do you see that this ruling might have as far as religious organizations and their employment practices? Well, Justice Alito's dissent laid out a really long list of concerns that he had, the implications that followed from this, and that many of them that impact 
religious freedom in particular. When you think of the hiring practices of a church or of a religious school, we know there is protection uh, in, in terms of hiring of ministers, for example, although there's a lot of pushback in a case at the Supreme Court right now already pushing back on that in uh, Christian schools, trying to limit the definition so that you would have to have, for example, teachers that are actively disagreeing with the church's teaching, nonetheless um, being being employed at the school. But it also extends to all the other em employees of those organizations. It, 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 it extends to Christian business owners, like we saw in the Hobby Lobby case, where in that case, you had business owners who were morally opposed to funding abortion and abortifacient contraceptives. The Supreme Court said they had a right to not be forced into paying for those uh, for their employees. However, now with this case, there's an outstanding question. Would they, the same uh, individuals then be forced to pay for uh, sex change surgery or cross-sex hormones for their employees, even though they similarly find those uh, to be morally problematic. Uh, so those are questions that the court is going to have to look at. First Amendment questions of whether someone could sue for a hostile work environment simply because someone said, I'm going to use pronouns uh, according to someone's biological mm -hmm. sex because I recognize that's the way um, God created them as male and female. That could be considered then harassment within the workplace potentially under this new interpretation, which runs right up against our free speech protection in the Constitution, not to mention freedom of religion protection. Carrie Severino of the Judicial Crisis Network here on The Intersection. You can find her on Twitter at JCN Severino, that's S-E-V-E-R-I-N-O. The organization's website is judicialnetwork.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center, the place you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection. You can find the podcast through that Media Center. It's also available through iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community, and the other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. There's a link to video content as well. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Conversations from The Meeting House can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just subscribe to the Faith Radio podcast when you visit. Again, that website address, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Moving on now on this edition of The Intersection, it's Amanda Barrett. In our recent conversation, she shared about the events that inspired her work of historical fiction, The White Rose Resists, which is set in World War II Germany and centers on a group that stood against the Nazi regime. Here now from that conversation is Amanda Barrett. Hans and Sophie Scholl, who were the core members of the White Rose, in the 1930s they were growing up, and they were heavily involved in the Hitler Youth and um, the League of German Girls, and were very um, enthralled by the speeches and the camaraderie and those programs. But then in 1935, Hans was chosen to carry a flag at the Nuremberg rally. And so here, surrounded by speeches and parades and this grandeur of the Nazi regime, he became disillusioned by this mind-numbing conformity he sensed. And then later on, the Scholl family discovered um, 
about what was going on with the Reich Euthanasia Program, where they were murdering thousands of people. And at that point, they received a leaflet in their own mailbox um, denouncing these crimes. And then Han said, we really have to have a duplicating machine of our own. And then a couple of years later, they're in their 20s studying at the university. They get a secondhand duplicating machine, a Remington typewriter, and this small handful of German students begins printing and distributing these leaflets. And it grows to um, this huge distribution project where they're distributing thousands of them across Germany and Austria. Tell me about the the way that faith motivated Sophie. So they were motivated from a Christian belief. They were Lutherans, and everyone in the White Rose was dealing in with this from a Christian mindset because they believed that what they saw, the mass murder of the Jewish people, Hans heard from a friend um, about the at what the Essence Einsatzgruppen was doing in Poland where they were doing these mass executions of Jewish people, and they believed that they could not be silently complicit. They believed that... They had to act, or they themselves would be, um, you know, silent witnesses of these crimes. And so that was how they came to then resist, not by, you know, throwing bombs or by planning to, you know, reorganize the government, but just by using their words as their weapons. Like you said, they used their words as their weapons. They were, well, for one thing, they were devoted to the cause, and they were skillful at communicating that cause and beginning to communicate that on a widespread basis. And I would imagine, (laughs) this may be an understatement, but their activities did not go unnoticed by those in the Nazi regime. So how did they how did they encounter the the Nazis uh, firsthand? So the Nazis from um, the Gestapo was monitoring their activities from very early on. People were coming to the Gestapo offices and handing in these leaflets, and so the Gestapo was then searching for them, especially when not only leaflets but graffiti started to appear in Munich. Um, after the defeat at Stalingrad, Hans and a few other of the young men went to the streets and were painting these slogans on public buildings, Hitler, the mass murderer, freedom. And then the, and the next day, the Gestapo was like, we really need to catch these people. And on February 18th, Hans and Sophie took a satchel and a suitcase full of leaflets to the university and were scattering them as morning classes were in session. And just as they were about to leave, Sophie pushed a stack of leaflets off the third floor banister and they sent went raining into the atrium below and this was spotted by a janitor who was just doing his rounds and he immediately apprehended them and they were taken into Gestapo custody and interrogated separately for 17 hours and finally confronted with evidence that was found in their apartment a bunch of stamps and some other things they were um, they confessed and both of them confessed wanting just to take the sole blame for the white rose upon themselves and to spare their comrades. and um, But unfortunately, um, Hans had a draft of another leaflet in his pocket that was written by a friend of theirs, Christoph Probst, and he was then, too, taken into custody. And four days after their arrest, they were tried by the People's Court. Um, Roland Freisler was the notorious president of the People's Court who um, he almost made this acting career out of the way he treated them where he would scream and he would shout and he would just abuse them terribly and call them these horrible names. And so they faced that. And during the trial, Sophie actually told um, the judge, she said, somebody have to, after all had to make a start. What we wrote and said is believed by many others. They don't just dare express it as we did. And of course, as you can imagine, they were sentenced to death. And 
usually it was very customary to only to get 99 days following your um, sentence before you'd be executed. But that very day, just mere hours after the trial, Hans, Sophie, and Christoph were executed at Stadelheim Prison in Munich. And so they died. And then um, in the months ahead, more trials and arrests and executions by other, with other members followed. Amanda Barrett here on The Intersection. Her website is Amanda Barrett, B-A-R-R-A-T-T dot net. Next on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's the CEO of My Faith Votes, Jason Yates. He discussed the importance of Christians voting in upcoming elections and related information about a new initiative called Our Church Votes. From that conversation, this is Jason Yates now. If you take um, every state and you look at um, their voter turnout and you graph that along um, the percent of the population in those states that um, uh, attend weekly service, they're inversely proportional. So that means states with high church attendance have low voter turnout. States with uh, low church attendance have high voter turnout. This is a driving factor that said we've got to do something to reach churches. We know there are over 300,000 churches, probably a lot more than that. It's hard to measure. Um, But we've got to engage the church leadership, the pastors, and that is why we launched our initiative uh, called Our Church Vote. And it's a really simple concept. It's giving really great professional um, needed resources to the church leadership to get people registered to vote. Um, And if you're already registered, um, that we've got great resources for the pastor to uh, do to have a sermon for small group studies for prayer guides. We want to equip the church um, in the way that they're doing ministry now, but to be able to speak into this important topic of being engaged in the public square and bringing the essential um, influence of our faith into the elections. Jason, if you could just give us a, a little bit of an idea with respect to what My Faith Votes has traditionally done over the last four years and how our church votes is an extension of that. Well, it's an extension and an, it's an expansion. Um, okay. We are calling every Christian in the U.S. to do three things in uh, an election season, to pray unceasingly um, for our nation, for our leaders in our elections, to think biblically about the issues, and to vote consistently in every election. And we're providing tools and resources for Christians to do that. Um, our church votes is really, instead of just equipping the individual in, a, in order to be able to do those things, we're equipping the church. So we're expanding our focus into churches, helping them do really well, and helping them, frankly, to be a little bit comfortable with the idea. There's a lot of pastors out there that aren't comfortable, and we're trying to help them and say, no, this is okay, and it's needed. The other piece of it, um, Bob, is that in the past, we've really focused more on just motivating those Christians who were already registered to vote, because there's millions of them. 
But now we're putting an emphasis on also voter registration. We believe that we can do that, and it's a really easy way for churches to engage, to, just to say, we are going to be a church that votes. And the first step you can take in order to do that is to take the first step civically by registering to vote. So talk about some of the the educational aspects of what our church votes uh, does. So we are providing a number of um, resources, including some small group studies. There's a, a really great series called Answers for Difficult Days, and we're going to make that available on ourchurchvotes.org. Um, in addition, we have sample sermons for pastors. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans, uh, he talks about how should Christians vote. We also have Vance Pittman, a, a pastor out of Las Vegas at Hope Church, has a really great ser sermon series around st he calls State of the Union. And what I love about what Pastor Pittman talks about is just the importance of prayer. He he says. The primary pursuit of the Christian in an election season is to seek the face of God in prayer. And, um, and he talks about so many other critical principles that I think so many pastors um, could incorporate into sermons that they would deliver from their pulpits. Um, and there's so much more, but we are providing tools and resources for help for people to think through um, how they can engage, can engage, and what types of resources they can offer in their church that they know will be beneficial to their congregation. Jason Yates here on the intersection. The website for My Faith Votes is myfaithvotes.org. You can learn more about our church votes at ourchurchvotes.org. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Jay Payleitner. He shared with me about his book, The Prayer of Agar, Ancient Wisdom for Discovering Your Sweet Spot in Life, which offers some principles for living in contentment in Christ. Here now from that conversation is Jay Payleitner. Yeah, we all know that uh, Proverbs has 31 chapters. Uh, the first 29 are written by Solomon, or maybe his minions. Uh, Proverbs 31 uh, is, of course, uh, written by King Lemuel, and that's the, that's the chapter that uh, women's groups uh, focus on. It's the yep. uh, a wife of noble character uh, is Proverbs 31. But Proverbs 30, Proverbs 30 kind of sneaks in there. It's written by this guy named Agur, and that's the only place he, he shows up in the Bible. Uh, I love him. I, I ran across him, and I, and I researched him. Uh, we don't know too much about him. Uh, he's kind of quirky, kind of a character. Uh, the, the second half of the chapter is he, he makes lists and talks about uh, how ponders why eagle, how eagles fly and, and why lizards run around castles and, and uh, all kinds of quirky little things. But that, that verse 8 and 9 is, as I said, the only prayer in all of Proverbs. And I'm going to go ahead and read it if I can. Is that okay, Sure, Bob? please. Please do. Okay, so this is what he says. Listen, folks. Um, give me neither poverty nor riches. He's talking to God. This is a prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. That's pretty good stuff right there. Then he goes on to explain why. He says, otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. 
So uh, think about that for a second. Uh, Agerhase identified his weakness, his, his own personal weakness, was, which materialism, let's call it that, materialism. And then he prays, he prays to live in God's sweet spot. Not too much, not too little. He knows if he has too much that he's going to start thinking it's all about him. And if he has too little, he might dishonor God. So he's, he's looking for balance. He, he, wants a, he wants only his daily bread. He doesn't say, give me my daily bread. He says, only my daily bread. What a courageous uh, prayer that is, Bob. Uh, the idea that uh, don't give me too much, but just only what I need, Lord. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could all kind of say, God, let me live, live in that sweet spot. Let's talk about that concept of the sweet spot, and I guess to to use a bit of a cliche here, so based on this concept and this prayer, how much is too much? Or I guess conversely, how little is too little? Well, uh, it's it's all about <laughs> not banging <laughs> off the, the guardrails of life. We want to be on, on, that, on that path following God's will for our life. And uh, what what Agar, and this book was so interesting to write to re, to write for me, and actually it was fun because <clears throat> Agar ident, identifies his weakness, which is stuff. Too much or too little, he wants to be in the middle there. But we all have weaknesses. I'm not going to ask you what yours is, Bob. But we all have weaknesses, and whether it's you know anger or, or envy or, or work, maybe we're workaholics, or we either we're lazy or we're workaholics, or uh, or food might be a. Uh, um, uh, a challenge, uh, one of our weaknesses, whatever it is. And then we, as humans, we also often go to extremes. And that's what I think this whole prayer of anger is going to rescue us from, is this idea that um, uh, uh, not, not too much, not too little, God's sweet spot. Um, I'm thinking about um, the Israelites in the desert. Remember they got manna every day from, mm-hmm. from heaven? And uh, they only got just enough for that day. Um, it was only my daily bread. Um, and again, boy, imagine if we all kind of uh, live in that sweet spot where we're trusting God to provide. We're, work, we're working hard, but not too hard. Uh, uh, and uh, we're living in God's sweet spot. I just love that idea of living in God's sweet spot. Jay Payleitner here on The Intersection. You can find him online through Payleitner. That's P-A-Y-L-E-I-T-N-E-R.com. We are nearing the end of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection Podcast. You can also find the podcast in the Media Center and subscribe via iTunes. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House, and the other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page, and there's a link to video content. Conversations from The Meeting House program can also be found through the Faith Radio app and a variety of podcast platforms. Learn more when you visit the Meeting House homepage at meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.